Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse number 7. Ephesians chapter 4. But unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended upon high, up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might feel all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of, of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, too. We all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning that you'll order our steps in your word, that you'll order our thoughts in, in your word, Lord, that we may see this morning the unsearchable riches that we have in you. May you compel us with your love. May you convict us with your word. May you cleanse us with your precious blood as we find ourselves under the authority of your word, moved by your word, convicted by the truths even presented to us here this morning. Lord, challenge us in your word. May we see ourselves and where we stand this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. They say that cancer is one of the most debilitating diseases of our day. But really, do you know what cancer is at its base? Cancer is cells that don't want to go along with the program. Cancer is cells that have their own deviant agenda. Now, it would be fine to have deviant cells in your body, so to say, is that once they become deviant, they would go on and just leave your body. But the problem is with cancer is that these deviant cells, they just want to hang out in you. They, they don't want to leave you. They don't want to go their own way. They're independent. Uh, cancer cells, they say, still want blood. They still want to eat. They still want oxygen because that's how they grow. Matter of fact, they say one of the worst things that you can hear when you're diagnosed with cancer is that it has metastasized. So in other words, they want to siphon off the body, but they don't want to contribute to it. They, and ultimately, when this cancer is in your body, if it goes on unaddressed, unless it's radically handled, the whole body becomes in trouble 
because of these cancer cells. The reality is that cancer exists in churches even today. They are cells of people who have found themselves in the local New Testament church who want the benefits of being involved in a local New Testament church but do not want to contribute to the body of Christ. They want the benefits to know that they could come and hear a message. They want the benefits of hearing singing. They want their kids to have toys. They like the idea that if they find themselves in trouble, that the church will come along and put food in the pantry. They like the idea if their family has problems that they can call the pastor in the middle of the night and get counseling. They, they find comfort that if you're in the hospital that, that, that someone in the church will arrive there and comfort them and pray for them and strengthen them. But they have no desire at all to contribute to the work. Here what we see in these texts is really what we'll focus on this morning in verses 7 through 10. Our text in 7 through 10 says that this is not how the church has ever been designed. It's never been designed to where the members within the church are not contributing to the church. But it has been designed, it has been gifted, even as verse number 7. Each and every member in the entire church has been gifted with a gift to help the church to grow in unity. We have not left in chapter 4 this mind of unity, what it means to be unified, what it uh, takes to be unified. We've seen when we started in chapter 4 that unity comes from each and every one of us treating each other properly. Uh, we said when we treat each other properly, we're gentle with one another. We're humble with one another, meek with one another. We're loving one another, forbearing one another in love, long-suffering. And then even in last week, we've seen that unity begins to grow even more when we have the shared doctrine. But now here, even more, Paul brings us back to this reality about how each and every one of us has been given a gift and how these gifts factor into the unity in the church. All throughout Scripture, we're challenged about our walk with Christ. We're challenged with what we should do for Christ. But in 7 through 10, it's really about what Christ has done for us. It's this great gift that Christ has given for us. And in the end of verse 6, which we've seen last week, Paul says, One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Here it is emphasized, all, all, all. He, he is taking the mile-high view of the body of Christ, but in verse number 7, Paul changes to take away the all view and begin to expose the components of how God works through all and how God works in us all. 
I find it interesting that here it says, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Grace is this Greek word charis. Gift is the word to say charismata. It is interesting that grace is not only what unifies us, but grace is also what diversifies us. This is what this verse says to us, that but unto every one of us is given grace. And this is grace that has been given us, saving grace. But also it's not just saving grace. It is enabling grace. We are given grace, not unto salvation, but yes, grace is unto salvation. But it is also grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. This grace that is given for these gifts, we said, comes from the word charismata. But now here, the all, all, all is broken down to the individual components when he says, but unto every one of us. Christ has gifted each and every one of us with a gift that will benefit the church. A gift to be used within the church to better the church, to unify the church. Do we recognize that verse 7 is what it's pointing out to us here is to say that each and every one of us in the building, God not only gave grace to save us, but God gave grace in the form of a gift so that we could work and labor with inside the walls of the Witten Place Baptist Church to unify the church for His glory? Do we know what our gifts are this morning? Every one of us. This is not to say that every one of us has been given the gift of grace so that we can contribute to the unity in the aspect of, well, I give money. This has nothing to do with money. This is enabling Grace, this is grace that produces works. Now, some say, well, I'm gifted to sing. Some say I'm gifted to teach. Some say I'm gifted to preach. Some say to lead. And it doesn't really matter, but the text points out clear that we are all gifted. And when we are all functioning in the manner in which we should, it is like an orchestra. It is all these different instruments that are performing their task. Now, as they're performing their task, their number one desire is to bring glory to God. But as each and every instrument is using their gift that God has gifted this specific church with, it sounds like the harmony of a fine orchestra giving praise to God. That is what this gift is that is what really unity is it's not uniformity it is harmony within the church as we seek to give praise to god beautiful harmony several things that we recognize here he says now every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of christ now, the word grace, we understand, it, it means we didn't deserve it. Grace means it is the 
unmerited favor of God. But now even more about the unmerited favor of God, it has shown itself again, not in the form of salvation, but in the form of these gifts. But there's another aspect brought out here in verse number seven about these gifts. He says that the gifts, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, when we measure something, it means that we portion it out. When we cut pies up in our home, I am always leery about the person who volunteers to be the one who cuts the pie up. Because most of the time it means the person who's excited about portioning the pie up is that there's about a 99% chance that they're going to end up with the biggest piece of the pie. Right, Seth? So, <laughs> but they're going to end up with the biggest piece of the pie. It's not going to be cut evenly. But look what Paul says here about verse number 7. According to the measure of the gift of Christ. Paul is saying as Christ sovereignly knew what the Witten Place Baptist Church was going to need to function in harmony to produce for his glory. That it was Christ who cut up the pie. It was Christ who divided up the gifts within the church. It was Christ who delivered the gifts that we would use to bring him glory. What this reminds us, though, is that, I mean, I don't know if you've ever done this as you've looked out and maybe see how this person's portion that they do is wonderful. Oh, look how they sing and how they sing so Wonderful. Or you may say in your mind that someone's ministry, when you look at what they do for Christ, you may feel that they have this bigger measure of grace as if Christ favored them. You may at times even find yourself envious of their ministry, that you wish that you was doing exactly what they was doing, because it seems like their ministry is so glamorous, so magnificent, so wonderful. And yet in reality is that if you was able to physically go do what they do, you would find yourself in a worse place because you would not yet be doing what God has called you to do and gifted you to do to bring harmony into ministry. Too many times we want other people's gifts. Two years ago, I think it was, I was asked to come preach at this conference and I agreed to go and I preached at the conference. And when the lady who was done singing, it was like she floated down from the stage. The applause were loud. Everybody thought she was wonderful. Many people believed that she was the best singer of the night. And you know what? I tend to think she was also. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was that she believed that she was the best singer of the night. And when the service was over, she only went around to 
further explain how she was the best singer of the night. No one needed to give her glory because she gloried in her own abilities. Now let me say this, that there is a difference between gifts and abilities. Though the lady sang wonderful, I personally believed by the end of the night she had the ability to sing. But I would argue whether or not that it was the gift given for this moment. Why? Because if grace, saving grace, is what brings us into unity, if grace is what enables us to work and labor for him in the manner of these gifts, then why would Christ ever give us a gift that disrupts the unity of his grace? Grace is humble. Grace is gentle. Grace is me. This is how we would behave amongst each other. Christ would never send his charis, his grace, and he would never send charismata to disrupt his charis. He would never send gifts to disrupt his grace. Even more, he says, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led, cap he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might feel all things. I want to bring understanding to this, but in order to bring understanding to this, we must first reference other texts in order to bring our mind to a clear understanding of this. We have discussed this before, but Prior to Christ's death on the cross, the Old Testament saints would find themselves in a place that was either called paradise or Abraham's bosom. When Christ died on the cross, what did he tell the thief next to him? He said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 and 19, it said, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, this is important. When, when, Paul, when Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he says that Christ descended down into hell and preached unto the spirits, this is not the word that we use throughout the New Testament in the Greek when we say uh, evangelizo, evangelizo, where we get our English word to evangelize. This is the word that we use when we say we preach the gospel. But here in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he said he preached to the spirits that were in prison, it is the word caruso, which is to say that when Christ descended into hell, he gave forth a proclamation. It was a divine announcement. It was to a public service announcement of news 
to the Old Testament saints. Even further, what we understand about paradise and Abraham's bosom is brought to us by Luke chapter 16 when we read about the story of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, how the rich man was in hell, but Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, and yet they could see each other, and yet there was a great gulf in between them. Yet Lazarus could see that he was in torment. I thought about this for a minute this morning, just as a side. Think about this. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man was in hell. Yet, Lazarus could witness the rich man's suffering. I began to think about all of the Old Testament saints. You know, why did Peter call this prison? Well, if this is not hell, why would it be prison? Why would you view this as captivity? Well, I began to think about David. He cried here on earth, O Absalom, O Absalom. Yet in hell, in Abraham's bosom, David could have witnessed his own son. Even Samuel, who was this mighty prophet for God, if he was in Abraham's bosom, and we know that text says that Samuel's children were not like Samuel. This, we run to our children's aid when we hear our kids cry, over stumbling and falling. I couldn't imagine what it must have felt like, though they were not physically suffering, what it meant to see people that you knew on earth in hell, and yet you were unable to help them. First Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord descended down into Sheol. This is hell. This is a geographical location. Though the Old Testament saints were not in this lake of fire, they were sure in the vicinity of it. The Lord descended down into this place and preached, delivered news unto the saints. Now, why does this matter? What is the clarification for this? Because verses 8 and 9 in 10 is an explanation about verse number 7. So we see here in 8, 9, and 10, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, the reason that this matters here is because Paul is reaching into the Old Testament here. Verses 8, 9, and 10, Paul has taken from Psalm 68 in the 18th verse. And once you understand Psalm 68 and as a whole, you'll understand this portion of 8, 9, and 10 all the more. Psalm 68 is a, it's a psalm of victory. It's a psalm of praise. You see, David had found himself at odds with the Jebusites. And while he was at odds with the Jebusites, 
the Jebusites had managed to capture some of the people of Israel. And as they had captured the people of Israel, it had become a daunting task. And David, as king, realized they was going to have to go to war against the Jebusites. So David goes down with Israel. They war against the Jebusites. Not only does David free those Israelites that were captive, but David in returns takes captive some of the people who was held in God's people captive. And as they returned back into Jerusalem, as they ascended up into the hill where the temple was, there on display was that God had mightily worked and delivered the people who was captive by the Jebusites. And even furthermore, they showed how powerful God was because not only did God deliver his people, but God gave them the strength to take captive the captors. And as they entered into Jerusalem, David, being the king that he was, took the spoils that they had captured from the Jebusites and began to distribute it amongst all of God's people in Israel. So here in this text in verses 8, 9, and 10, what Paul is seeking to put on display for us, what he is trying to bring to our understanding, what has given Christ the right to do such a thing? What has given Christ the right to divvy out the measure of this gift? Verses 8, 9, and 10 wants to make us understand that he was king in heaven. He was king on earth. He was king when he descended. And when he rose from the grave, that which held the Old Testament saints captive, death, he had now risen from the day, the grave, delivered the captives from the grave, and that which had them captive, he had now taken captive. Death was no longer holding God's people, and death will no longer hold God's people. We no longer have to worry about this time. We no longer have to worry about being separated from Christ. He has taken captivity captive and distributed gifts unto all men. When he rose from the grave victoriously, when he conquered death, that which hunts us, he reserved the right to give the spoils from that great victory. That is what 8, 9, and 10 is to bring us to understand. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Only Christ alone could have conquered what had held his people captive. Only Christ alone could, after such a great victory, retain the right to give gifts on top of his saving grace to his people. Look at the next verse. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, 
and gave gifts unto men. He says, when the Lord ascended on high, that old burden of death was now his captive. It would no longer hold those captive who belonged to him. But even more, when, when he ascended, what is it also that he descended first into the lower parts of the earth? This is the reference to Peter. That when he first, before he ascended into heaven, he first descended to preach unto the spirits, to deliver good news, not the saving gospel, but that death had finally been conquered. Victory was now on the scene. Could you imagine what it's like after thousands of years sitting down there? After thousands of years sitting down in paradise and after death, after death on earth, these spirits would appear down here in earth. And then one day here down in paradise, a thief on the cross and Jesus Christ himself appeared down in paradise. I imagine the scene, this long awaited time that David had longed for and Moses had dreamed about in all of these Old Testaments, Abraham, who by faith and Jacob, by faith and Rahab, all of these people who had put their faith. Now in this moment, Christ appears before their eyes and he delivers wonderful news. But three days from now, we are leaving this place behind. But three days I could only imagine what it would be like to be held captive in a place absent from the Lord, longing to get freedom. And then here comes Christ. Who is it that before he ascended, he first descended? God never forgets his people. He descended down into hell and preached a wonderful message that we're getting out of this place even more. He that descended is also the same that also ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. He continues on to say that Christ is where it all started. King at the descension, as Philippians said when he took on the most defenseless form of humanity, a baby. Even more, he was king. Raised king, died king, descended as king, and ascended as king. But John chapter 14 and verse 6 reminds us that at the ascension of Jesus Christ, when he ascended into heaven, what did he do? He did not leave us alone, but he poured out his Holy Spirit upon us that we may all be filled. That is what the text says. In verse 10, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. That he might fill all things. Now I wish I could just expound upon what that means, but that statement alone has left me baffled. What it really means that he may feel all things. It does not say that he may feel all his people. It doesn't say that. It says that he may feel 
all things. I take it to see that it means that everywhere we look, there is manifestation of what Christ has done. I believe it to be true. I tried to brainstorm in my mind, what is all things? I mean, if we look at time, he has affected time, has he not? If you just look at the historic, read a history book. We have B.C. and A.D. Even in the secular world, he has affected all things. He is in all things. He has changed all things before Christ and Anno Domini. Christ has impacted this world, time, space, matter, his existence is clearly made known in all things. So, what gives him the right to verse number seven? But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. What gives him the right to divvy out the slices of the pie? What gives him the right to measure out the gifts to each and every one of us? What gives him the right is that he is the king. He is the victor. He has conquered what no one else could do. And he has not only descended, but he has ascended. And he ascended here to earth before he ascended to heaven to make it known that victory has been wrought. And then he ascended even further, but to never leave us alone. He has divvied out each and every one of us a gift. But why did he do this? Why did he do this? Why the gifts of Christ? To better unify the church. To make the church a harmonious orchestra. God has given some of you gifts that I don't even understand. I listen to some of you sing, and I'm like, I want to do that. And I open my mouth, and the words come out. I watch her play the piano, and I, I don't even have that kind of coordination. I fall over tying my shoes. But I recognize that God has gifted us, each and every one of us, with different abilities. The abilities may not always be the glamorous one that's held out before everyone. But what God has given you has the same absolute purpose as the piano player, the singer, the preacher. They are all for the same purpose, to bring glory to his name at the Winter Place Baptist Church. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to even study here in your word this morning. Lord, I know there are many who are out this morning. Lord, we pray that you give them safe travels, Lord, that you'll heal them, Lord, that you'll put your hand upon them, Lord. I pray for those who have upcoming procedures, Lord, that you'll be with the doctors. Lord, thank you for those who are continuing to labor here. Thank you for those who you're burdening for the ministry. Thank you for those who even of this week, have spoken to me about desiring to do more for your name. Lord, what a blessing that is. Lord, may we not find ourselves in a place where we're stagnant, but in a place that 
what God has given us the ability to do, we should do with all of our heart to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.